Welcome to the Clear to Close podcast with our hosts, local mortgage expert Ryan Bolton and Carson Jones, owner of Team Honey with Red Rock Real Estate. Ryan and Carson have the questions and answers, tips and tricks, do's and don'ts, and expert guests to help explain all the steps needed to buy or sell real estate. And now it's time for the Clear to Close podcast. Welcome, everyone. I've got a special guest with me today. Carson actually just had his baby. So, hey, second baby. A wonderful experience. She came a little bit early, so that is a fantastic story. But I got Ryan Judd. He's been on my list to have here in studio because one of the most important parts about owning a home is getting an appraisal done on the report, whether you're buying cash or whether you're doing a loan against the property. So I want to talk to Ryan today about some of the things that go into determining a home's value. So we have a slide here. I want to kind of go through these key points with you first. So let's pop up our first slide. So our first thing is how do appraisers determine the value of the home? I think number one is going to be the location of the home. So kind of ta- obviously a home that's sitting right on the beach in California is going to be different than a home sitting in barefoot Idaho, even if it's the same quality, construction, builder. I mean, all those things can be similar. So how much do you look at location? And when you're doing an appraisal, how far away can things be to use that as a comparable? Thanks for having me, first of all. Sure. Glad to be here. Um, to answer your question, anything in life that has value has scarcity. So location comes down to what's replaceable or is it easily replaceable? So if you've got tracked homes in the middle of a field that you can replicate over and over and over again, that land isn't going to go upward in value exponentially if there's an excess in in inventory. But they're only making so many homes up on a cliff or next to the beach or on the golf course. And so typically that's why those homes command greater values and the location is the premier value indicator to start. Okay. When when you're doing an appraisal, how far away... From a subject property, is there is there rules and stuff like that that determine, okay, here's the home on Main Street. I can go how far away to use that as a comparable? Because you know you hear times where it jumps over a freeway or railroad tracks or certain things that, that exclude that from the comparables. When you're dealing with like a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan, they go into lending parameters or neighborhood parameters. They want the comps to be within one mile. Um, no, there isn't an exact distance that we're tethered to, but as far as when we're appraising for like a typical Fannie Mae loan, yes, they want those comps within one mile. If we're going to exceed that, we explain why. And the Mm -hmm. reasonings why on that would be, would be like, you say you've got an exponential home, like a very fancy home up in Springdale, um, up on a cliff overlooking Zion. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you could have a comparable cell that's in Park City or Mm -hmm. other parts of the the state. Um, And so certain homes do warrant to go further away for a comparable cell. Okay. And in comparables, what is what is a comparable? We hear comps, we hear that word. What would you say is like a definition of comparable when it's on an appraisal? Utility would be the word that comes to my mind. Mm-hmm. What has similar or like utility? What has a similar view? What has a similar uh, kitchen, bedroom count, bathroom count? Um, and it's, of course, location, as we said, garages, mm-hmm. condition, quality, all of those things. Sorry. So what makes it comparable is, does it have similar utility? Does it have similar amenities? And like I said, that's where location is really important because if you're in a certain unique area, there's not that same unique area within, say, a mile away from that home because it is in a view area or golf course or something. That's when you have to maybe expand to a different area. Have you seen a lot of comps where you're in southern Utah and have to use something as far away as Park City to kind of justify why that home is that? Or is it usually closer than... Usually I mean, you can pull that off. Like, you, you know, St. George, this southern Utah market, you know, you, you get up into, you know, Kayenta or Entrada, Stonecliff, you have like custom home developments, but there's adequate comparable cells to use those. Um, at times I have ran into some homes. There's, there's been some homes that are, you know, three to $10 million homes here that are unique. Mm-hmm. And when they are unique, sometimes there's a, there's a reason that we've gone to Vegas for comps at times for mm-hmm. some of these larger homes that 
uh, command higher price points. Okay, let's pull up the slide again. Let's go through another thing here. How much does, um, so right here is how do appraisers determine the value of the home? The next one we have here is the age of the home. How much, I, I see sometimes where you have this effective age versus actual age, and how sometimes they that can raise a red flag that if it's, you know, so much 1950 when it was built, but effectively it's one year old. I mean, how how, how do you handle that as an appraiser when you do have something that's been remodeled or has had those upgrades to be able to kind of change its effective age? How much does that really play into what comps that you use? Effective age plays into everything. Okay. Where typically older appraisers back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, they were adjusting year by year. And so mm -hmm. if a home was built in 78 and the one was 85, you would adjust per year base. Mm -hmm. But we primarily base it off of effective age now and condition. And so you can have a home that's 100 years old, but they took it down to the studs, they redid the electrical, they redid the plumbing, the roof, the windows, everything. And all of a sudden the effective age of that home is three or five. Mm. Or, and so all of a sudden you're comparing that 100 year old home to a three year old home yep. because of its effective age. As, does it work the other way around? Let's say you've got a home that is older versus the newer homes or more than been remodeled. Does it have kind of the reverse effect if the remodeling hasn't been done on the home? If it hasn't, then all of a sudden you're looking for other homes with similar utility, like I said, okay. or similar condition and, and like amenities. And so things that have deferred maintenance or things that haven't been updated as much, we, we seek similar or comparable properties. Okay, great. So let's pull the slide up one more time. We're going to do a couple more here. Uh, this kind of plays into the age maybe a little bit is the condition of the home in relation to the other comparables again, like how much has been remodeled, if it's got a lot of deferred maintenance, you know, you can see one house has just been beat to heck, hasn't had any maintenance to it, another home that's just been kept up. So how much do you look for the condition and how that wear and tear is played out on that home versus the other comparables? Because when you're doing the comparables, is it something where you're going into that house as well? Or is it more just what, what data you can find out about, say, a home that's been remodeled? Primarily, we're looking at the, the, the main items, such as kitchens and bathrooms, how much okay. they've been updated, because those are what items return the most in, in investment as far as a return on value of when you're updating those items. And so when we're looking at our subject property, we'll look at the kitchens, the bathrooms, all those things, what type of updating there's been. And then when we look at a comparable property, we go through the photos, hopefully, that we have through the MLS. And then we even either interview the agents or we look at those photos or we've, we've walked through those properties ourselves to make those comparisons. Yeah, and that's part of using a, a local expert, local team. That really makes a big difference to be able to know. I, I've had a couple times where we've done appraisal and said, oh, yeah, I appraised that house five years ago or whatever. So there's also some common knowledge of just having somebody's experience that's been into so many of these homes, been into the neighborhoods, watching the trends of what's happening, like you said, in, in condition and quality construction, stuff like that. And there's even times where you see a certain builder or whatever, that a certain subdivision is just the quality of its construction versus another one could also go down faster because of that type of thing. So let's pull the slide up one more time here. I think we've got two more that we want to talk about. Yeah. And uh, let's see. The next one here is the additions or remodeling. So I find this is an issue when you've got somebody that does do some sort of remodeling, especially when it's addition or square footing, adding, maybe you're converting a garage into bedrooms, that they don't go through the process to get it permitted to make it actual square footage. Maybe another one's finishing basements. So talk about how uh, you know dollar per square foot affects when you're not getting permits or the difference between, say, a basement and above ground square footage. So primarily, it's always advisable to go through profit, pr proper channels when you're doing an addition. Uh, was it built to code? Was it built to standard? All those things. And, and this so, is really when it's an addition adding square foot, not necessarily cosmetic changes like carpet and paint. Well, you're even, talking stuff that Even is a garage structural. floor. When you build a garage floor, it isn't structurally compacted like the rest of your home. And so when they do footings and things like that, they actually pour all of your, your slab before on your home, and then the garage is the last thing poured. Mm -hmm. And the, the way it's compacted and the way it is is not the same as the slab of the floor of your house. Mm -hmm. And so it's inferior in quality. 
And so it can shift and it's actually sloped down for water drainage as well. Mm, so it's point. not perfectly flat. Point. Yep. And, so and that's where walk... you see a lot more cracks maybe in a driveway or a garage floor than you would necessarily in the foundation of the home. If you ever want to look for expansive soils or what's going on, the best places to look are in the exterior patios or the garage mm. floor. Good. Well, That'll look at tell that. you what's shifting the most. <laughs> There's a tip yeah. for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to the slide one more time. Oh, well, let's talk about basement. I do want to talk about that because I've had a lot of people that, that think that you know, other than upgrading kitchens and baths that maybe finishing the, the basement can be good. And they go really overboard on it versus the dollar per square foot that's actually going to add in value. Now, obviously, it adds you use and how they want to use the home, maybe amenities that will attract a buyer. But I may sometimes the budget that's spent on it thinking they're doubling their value of their home by finishing the basement. So talk a little bit. We don't have a ton of basements in southern Utah. It's mostly slab on grade. Mm -hmm. But it is something where you do run across people that have basements. We have a lot of walk-up basements. Walk um, yeah, okay. But even then, walk basement square footage typically is is cheaper square footage to construct primarily because you're, you're pouring a slab anyway and you just have to pour the stem walls eight you know nine feet down ten feet down and you you get that extra space mm. but then to finish it out it doesn't cost you any less to put the carpet the paint the mm. fixtures the bathrooms all that stuff is similar um, costs is it also less permitting too is there less things where you have to follow as many codes with basement i've heard that in the past but i think that's kind of gone away almost everybody just does the same codes for upstairs as downstairs just because it's better to you know, not try to save a couple two by fours or something by not having to go a certain distance. But do you know if there's any regulation difference with basement square footage. Typically, ba like bathrooms, things like that are already pre-approved through the city because the plans were submitted that way, and then the the plumbing was already in place, hmm. and so then you go through and finish those items as well. Um, cost is as it just depends on location as well and how many basements there are. Like so, hmm. if you're primarily built out into a, a home of of an area of 1,800 square foot homes with no basements, and you all of a sudden have an 1,800 over 1,800, and you're the largest home in the neighborhood, that becomes not good. Mm. You never want to be over-improved for an area. But maybe you're built out, and you're one of the smaller homes of 18 over 18, and there's a lot of homes that are 2,000 over 2,000 or 3 over 3, and you get that upward mobility of value. And you mentioned walkout basements. And so when you see it, you got basically the back of the house, typically not the front. There's kind of reverses where, you know, the slopes the other way, but typically you'll have the outside of the back door level with the ground, but the front's underground. Mm -hmm. Is that still the same kind of split? Is it still just considered basement regardless of half of it's underground or most of it's underground? I mean, how does that differ based on how you would actually dollar per square footed? Because it is something where it is technically below grade, even if it really isn't from the back of the house, you know, from the... Anything below grade, even a foot or two is, is classified as a basement, anything below grade. Okay. Um, is that the entire base footprint? Every, or? the whole base so footprint. So if one of it's so underneath, if, the whole one, thing? The front corner of the home is under the underground, it's underground. Hmm. The whole basement is considered basement. Um, St. George, it's our water table. You dig a pool down, you hit water about five feet in most places. That's why we don't have very many basements. Right. So they're walkout basements because these lots, you're technically not really going underground because of how the, the lot is sloped and you just build that home into the slope. And so the back portion of that wall or the stem wall is in the underground, which defines it as a basement. And you think it's also just the demographics where people don't want the stairs, they don't want that type of stuff, or is it mostly just the conditions of the soils and stuff like that that does most of it? Conditions, soils, things like that, yeah. That's probably Mo more most people leading. would add a basement if they could, but it's mm -hmm. just cost, water table issues with that that we I, have here in St. George. That's one of the biggest things I think people that are used for northern Utah has a lot more basements than when they work their way down here. Sometimes they don't care, they don't want it because they want to be slab on grade, retired, don't want stairs. But it's amazing how often you have people that just are amazed there's not a lot of basements in southern Utah, unless it's the walkout style where it's more based just on the slope of the yard. But very few, I mean, how many appraisers have you done in the last year that were a full enclosed basement? Not I mean, very many. And they maybe, they, maybe. And typically <laughs> they don't command a very great value in, in St. George. Mm -hmm. People want that walkout basement. They so. don't want the walkout basement. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I want to just talk about those things real quick about 
uh, kind of the things you're looking at. But now I want to talk about um, what's going on within the industry. Now, what we're seeing on the lending side is a lot more of appraisal waivers. We're starting to see the fact that if the credit profile is strong enough, then there's a chance to be able to waive the appraisal completely, where we never used to see. It was always just required appraisal was just always part of everything. But as they've gotten more and more data and they've got more points, but in Utah, we're a non-disclosure state. So sometimes that data to pull these automated values don't either come in or don't come in high enough or still recommend an appraisal. But from you guys, is this, do you feel like this is something they're trying to do to just eliminate the appraisal field and altogether? Or what are you guys doing as an industry to say, hey, there's still major value for us to order appraisal, even if we get a waiver? There's major value in an appraisal at all times. Um, there's nothing wrong with an industry changing, and it needed to change, frankly. Um, part of the appraisal waiver is before, you know, a lending was based solely on the asset and the asset only. Now it's more of a, a, a a total risk assessment of what's a, the the borrower's credit score, what's their asset base, what do they have, and so and what's their down payment. And so mm -hmm. if that waiver comes across, I still advise people to get appraisals. First of all, you've got secondary set of eyes that are, that are looking at what's your total square footage. Is it correct? Is it what the county is indicating? Uh, where the, where the permits pulled? If there were any additions pulled, um, zoning verifications, all those type of things. When you're buying one of the biggest assets of of your of your life, yeah, and it's something where. Maybe what the data is pulling is just raw data, but it's not pulling photos. It's not looking for water damage from the roof. It's not looking for other things that can be hidden, like you said, that doesn't have a trained eye to know. I mean, you're in houses every single day. You know where people try to hide stuff. You know where people try to, to – it's just having another pair of eyes, especially if they miss the home inspection. If they're not doing a home inspection and an appraisal, they're missing out on an opportunity to catch something that's wrong or to make sure they're protecting one of the biggest assets they're going to buy, one mm -hmm. of the biggest loans they're going to do. But it is interesting to see how Utah hasn't had this increase of – waivers because of some of the data that they're getting. but it, And it's a lot more common on refis, I would say, than purchase money. Mm -hmm. But you're totally right. It's something where before it was always, you know, four things we always need appraisal was always, no, there was never waivers. That's, you know, you might get something where you get a waiver if it's like 50% loan to value. They've been in the home 50 years. They got 900 credit score. Okay. They'll wait on a rate and term refi. But you are seeing the industry moving more to these digital type mortgage loans. And one of the things they're trying to push for is uh, appraisal waiver. So it, it is it something, like you said, it's really good to get your own appraisal report anyway, just to get another pair of eyes on it and just double check because the square footage could be wrong. It could be something where it's pulling different data or the quality construction. There's other things you can look for is there. But are you seeing the industry trying to, to push back and, you know, use PAP and some of these other things? Are they trying to do anything to just avoid waivers? Are they trying to push back and just say, hey, we shouldn't allow waivers at all? Sometimes an appraisal isn't needed. Sometimes, mm -hmm. legitimately, they're coming in. They, they, you know, say I'm buying a house for my brother, and I know I'm paying two hundred thousand less than market value, and I'm coming in with a hundred thousand down, and the loan is is a moot point, is what the appraisal is. But when you're getting an appraisal, or if there's an appraisal waiver, you truly don't know what the value of that home is going in. You can have your agent telling you, "Yeah, I feel really good about it," but I, you know, it. Most agents are great, but they are working on a commission base. They get paid when they sell a house, and mm -hmm. both sides. And the appraiser is the only unbiased party there to say, hey, here's the data, here it is. And for 400 bucks, you're getting an independent uh, opinion based off of this huge asset buy that you're doing. Um, and so it just cuts out anybody that's a commission based, you know, the, the from the loan officer to the, 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 the realtors, they're all getting a cut of that buy. And I, and I tell you, that's probably the biggest thing that's a move in our industry is not only the waivers, but the fact that we now have these management companies in between you and me. I used to see my appraisers once a week, you know, once, you know, bringing in appraisal reports or talking, we network, you know, you'd send your business to a couple different appraisers that you're working with based on either how quick they could do it or, or just the networking in the industry. They've really removed that completely with these AMCs. So 
maybe maybe a lot of consumers don't realize this. When we order an appraisal now, we have to order it through the management company who then randomly assigns it to you guys. Mm -hmm. So you're really working more for the management company than even the lender at that point or the borrower. So it's like you're not the client of either one. Technically, you're really of the AMC, and then we hire that AMC. But it's interesting how it feels like it's it's separated us a little bit from that. Now, maybe they abused it so much, we deserve it. You know, there was so much abuse that was happening between mortgage companies and appraisers to artificially push up values and sales prices and stuff like that. But I think it almost feels like we've lost kind of that networking with appraisers and kind of knowing what's going on there. So are, are you seeing, has that been a good thing or a negative thing as far as having those AMCs between the loan officers? Do you feel like it does keep you more neutral so there isn't the sense that you are working directly with the lender or the real estate agent? Independence comes to mind. It does create an independence veil that you can't call me and say, hey, I'm doing this loan for my brother. Do you think we could hook him up with this appraisal? Do you think you can hit this number? Do you think you can do this? And that stuff did happen, frankly. We just kind of shrug it off before and let it go. But now that we have just an order comes to us, I don't know who you're doing it for, who, you know, and sometimes I don't even know who the loan officer is. I just right. see. And I know. don't know who the appraiser is until the appraisal shows up. Yeah. Like I literally don't know and I can't have any communication with the appraiser until the report's actually in the office. Now, if it does come in and we say, hey, wait a minute, there's a comp or something, or why is there an adjustment or something, we can't have those conversations, but typically it has to go through that AMC. Now, some of those rules are going away, like some of them, the HVCC, mm -hmm. that kind of went away, but the system's now in place that lenders kind of like it, and they're just saying, we're just going to stay with that system. So many lenders so, have it built into their corporate structure now that that's Some of them own the AMCs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an interesting part. It's like, okay, they put this AMC, now they own that AMC, and they're supposed to still be this third-party thing. But, but yeah. no lender or a loan officer can work for that AMC or have interactions right. with them. And so it's still a kind of a separate entity is right. how it works. But one of the biggest changing movements in appraisal as well is bias. And how an appraisal goes in, appraiser goes into a property. Um, mm -hmm. We've all read the articles based off of race, creed, religion, all those things that I felt like I was, um, what's the word? Um, there was bias. There was racial bias or, or religious bias, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're, they're working on ways that that works. And so one of the words that comes that's changing with appraisal is bifurcation. Bifurcation is that you have a separate... Um, independent inspector go out, inspect the property, get all the measurements, get all the photos, who then submits that to the analyst. And the analyst will go through and and and, and do the appraisal on mm. the property. And okay. so that creates a situation that I didn't go through the home. I didn't hear the lady screaming at the kids or the lady screaming at me or, or whatever. The dog, dog or the dog barking <laughs> or whatever. I didn't see somebody's, you know, anything that might set me off. Mm. Um, and so that helps with bias as well. Do you think that adds to the cost? I think that's one thing with the AMCs being added, with the... You know, that one extra step and then other other requirements and the, and all the stuff that USPAP actually has you do and the form just seems to get longer and longer. Every form in the mortgage industry gets longer. It doesn't get shorter kind of mm -hmm. thing. So it seems like the cost of getting these things continues to go up. And you're starting to see less and less people getting into the appraisal world. They're retiring out. We're seeing like, well, I mean, I saw a report that showed more people retiring as appraisers than joining the, the industry. So you think that's putting an undue pressure on appraisers and what you're actually receiving for your compensation is going down because there's more hands in the pot, so to speak, to kind of make this go. It just seems like appraisals have gone way up. I mean, I, I was in the days where appraisals were 300 bucks, you know? Yeah. Well, sadly, a lot of people think that, you know, a lot of times you'll get an appraisal bill and it'll be $800. Right. But what they don't see is three to $400 of it at times goes to that AMC. Right. And so the appraiser's still getting four to $600 for that appraisal. Right. And so appraisal is one of the only industries that I know that I can say 15 years ago, I was charging $375, where I still did an appraisal this week for $450. Right. It's not like it's gone up exponentially for the appraiser. That's the thing that for the con consumer. And again, this is those unintended consequences of regulation and all this kind of stuff that are designed to kind of protect. 
they when they add these other businesses inside or in between us and all that, it just adds to the cost of it. And then you start wondering, what are they really doing other than just sending the appraisal report to you? They're <laughs> you literally know, the middleman. And I've seen sometimes that AMC made more on the report than the appraiser did. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what I've seen sometimes where you have the trip fees and stuff like that, or you have maybe a rush fee or sometimes. So when you get an appraisal from an AMC, so they bid it out to whatever whoever's on their system or their pool or their panel. There's a couple different words for it. Um, do you see stuff where you you get outbidded because an appraiser is willing to do it cheaper or fast? Do you ever see what the other bids are? Or you just say, okay, here's the appraisal report. When can you have it done? How much are you charging? Yeah, is that I'll, really I'll you give see? them a flat bid. This is what it's worth to me to get it done in this amount of time and. If you find somebody else to do it, somebody else gets it. Just like you call a plumber. Are you willing to do it for X amount of dollars? And a lot of times that bidding process goes out like that. So is it not something where you see? Not, I always hear bids. So you see the other bids, or they just send it to nope, you? No, they call then, me and say, "Hey, what's the cost to get it here by Friday?" I say six hundred bucks. Right. Maybe. And you either get there. Another guy down the road said five twenty-five. They took him, and he did the job. Because most of the time with us, it's the same fee regardless. Now sometimes you will have an AMC call you back and say because of a rush or distance or something. This you know, there's a bump up in the cost or something mm-hmm. like that. So as as we're disclosing on the loans, we have to disclose third party fees, and mm-hmm. we only are allowed a certain padding. That if it goes up above that, we have to actually eat it as loan officers. So a lot of times we're padding it even more. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's interesting. Whenever you see a consistent fee padded, that becomes the base number, and then the pad goes above that. So it almost again artificially raises the price. Where we're not trying to make more. We don't make any money in the appraisal. The appraiser's not making any more. But the cost is still going up because it's it was disclosed that way. Sometimes it gets equated that that's how much people pay because right. of the initial disclosures. Yes. And it just becomes more of an industry. That's what everybody's charging. But for that's also the stuff. value of getting a very well-educated loan officer like yourself that you do know that it costs more to go to Duck Creek or Bryanhead right. or Escalani or Panguitch or Kanab or you right. know, the outlying areas. And that's where when you're submitting to an ASC and you know it's an outside area, you know you got to raise that price a little bit because if you send it out 300 bucks, every appraiser is going to say, no, no, it's not worth it. It's going to take me all day to get up and there and back. And times that <laughs> AMC takes a week and a half trying to find somebody to do it, right. where in the meantime, your lock is sitting and they can't get the, the deal done. Right. Or some uh, appraisal deadlines, there's all kinds of stuff that are kicking in. So that's where, again, that's where the experience of a team that's knowing the area just knows some of those little pitfalls that can cost you a week. Mm-hmm. You know, if I get to the point where I'm not seeing an ETA on the appraisal report within a few days of ordering it, that's usually when I know, okay, either the time frame's too quick, location's an issue, price, something's an issue, why no appraiser is taking this this bid. Mm-hmm. Now, and that's probably why I worked on trying to make sure our panels also have enough to be able to kind of accommodate all areas. But it's something where you don't want to have 50 appraisers on there either. Mm-hmm. Um, how many times are you seeing other appraisals for like second reviews? Did you see anybody even like buyers and sellers ever going to you and say, hey, can you review this appraisal? It just feels like it's wrong or their comps are wrong. Or do you ever really see a lot of that? Lenders will approach you for a, a desk review or a field review where you re- review other work or even in private appraisals. They're like, hey, I got this appraisal. I need you. To, would you be willing to look at this? So, yeah, for a fee, I review that report. I go through and say, yeah, I, I feel like this is a su- substantiated report or no, I do believe that they could have used these comparable cells and created a, a, a more accurate value. I think that's been helpful, too. There's sometimes you can say, hey, why did they skip one? You know, there's more than the three comps, you know, six comps, depending on how many comps are in the appraisal. And you'll be like, well, wait a minute, there's this. Why do they skip it? There's sometimes a reason, sometimes there's not. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to get just – it's a lot easier when you have those numbers or this street address, what it's sold, and say, okay, here's this one. Why did you skip it? So that's sometimes where we've, we've talked as well and said, hey, can you just take a look at this one? Why is this one so much different, and why did they go so far to find a comp one? And I know there was ones that were closer. One next door. So sometimes you go back and you explain, well, this one was a two-bedroom, where ours is a four-bedroom. Hmm. And the utility was substantially different. So even though it's located next door, the utility is – 
completely different. Absolutely. And or updating your condition. So, yeah. Well, I really appreciate I mean, we've always been good friends I, I, over the years. I mean, we're Ryan's, so yeah. Ryan's got to <laughs> stick together. <laughs> but it's something where, how does somebody get a hold of you? So if they if they do get an appraisal waiver or they're paying cash and they just want to have a pair of eyes that, that are unbiased, like you said, how do they get a hold of you directly? Because a lot of times people think they order the appraisals. Even buyers will say, oh, do they order the home inspection? Do I order the appraisal? And we say, no, we have to order that as a part of a loan process. But let's say somebody wants to have you look at their appraisal or they're looking to sell a home and want to get it done. How do they get a hold of you directly to order an appraisal? So my, I have a website, but I was formerly Judd Appraisal. I merged with True Footage. Uh, True Footage is a nationwide company. I did that because of all the changes that are going on mm. as far as the industry, what it is. And they're going to be a tech-driven company that, that, is, that is going with the evolution of appraisal, basically. Um, to get a hold of me directly, so on the, the, the note of appraisal waiver, uh, real quick, um, say you're buying a home or you're listing your home. And when an agent lists your home, they only go onto the county and they, it, it automatically inputs from the county website, 1,700 square feet. If I go out there and I measure the home and I come up with 1,790 mm. square feet, if I'm 90 square feet more and you're selling at $300 a foot, I'm pretty sure it was worth you paying me two to $300 to come out there and measure it. That's a great point. And That's... so even then, I just think it's part of a due diligence on a listing or selling side to have an appraisal done just to secure your your decision. Yeah, a lot of times they'll say, where did you find that square footage? County records. How many times are county records wrong? All so getting something that's a third party saying, yes, this is actually the square footage, that can make a big difference. And if there is a big discrepancy, maybe there is an issue with permitting or stuff that was done on there as well. So I uh, really appreciate your time, Ryan. Uh, I think we flashed up his information on there as well. Yeah, cell phone, my, email, feel free to re reach uh, out to me. On my website, I'm ryanbolton.com. We're going to put your information there as a preferred vendor. We have some issues, obviously, prefer, you know, with, when it comes to our AMCs and stuff like that as well. Uh, but we really appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, submit any questions, comments, and concerns. Otherwise, we will see you next week. This has been the Clear to Close podcast with Ryan Bolton and Carson Jones. Please submit your comments, questions, and topics for future episodes to clear to close pod at gmail.com that's clear the number two close pod at gmail.com or find my home utah.com or ryanbolton.com please like follow and share and until next time this is the clear to close podcast views expressed do not necessarily reflect those of patriot home mortgage or team honey with red rock real estate license number nmls 299717 this has been a production from a podcast studio